Trade Talk Live, exploring human, digital, and social transformations. Welcome to Straight Talk Live. I'm your, one of your co-hosts, Rick Snyder, and it's a pleasure to be with you this Tuesday, which is rare for us. Usually we're on live on Thursdays, but this guest is so good and so booked up, we got him in on a Tuesday. So um, I want to first uh, hand it over to my friend, Af, who's co-leading this amazing experience. Af, do you want to just share a little bit about Straight Talk Live and about yeah, you? Yeah, sure. Sure, absolutely. Thank you, guests and friends and folks who've been so committed and loyal to us and keep coming onto these shows. Uh, once again, I always start off by, uh, you know, showcasing the fact that there is a level of energy and excitement about the amazing guests that we bring on our show today. We have a bit of a legend and a, and a guru uh, in his own right, Dr. John D. Martini, who um, just before the show, I'd, I realized I have a, a connection with through an old friend of mine who is, uh, who's been doing a lot of work with um, Dr. D. Martini. So serendipity at work already. Um, what can I say about us? You know, we've been cracking on for the last few months with Straight Talked Up Live. It's, um, it's a booming live cast and um, now, of course, a podcast as well, right, Rick? That's so, right. which we'll tell you all about. My, my background is um, uh, stems in the fact that um, I come from a corporate environment. I switched and, you know, um, changed my direction and went into the world of entrepreneurship five or six years back. Uh, went into venture capital and started investing in companies. And then, of course, decided I'll do the real stuff and build my own enterprise, which I'm running right now. And uh, Straight Talk Live is my sense of purpose. It's my mission it's stemmed out of the COVID time and it's given me those really high compelling values that uh, Dr. Martini talks about. And hence we've managed to use that energy and we called for him and the world's conspired and he's, he's here today. So Rick, thank you for making it happen back to you and let's, let's get cracking. Yeah. And I'll give you my background so people can really feel the merging of the show, the essence of the show of me and off. So my background is more in human behavior, and I studied human behavior for over 20 years in psychology. Uh, at one point was a therapist, a life coach, then business coach. And what I realized in my journey is I got the human element uh, in a very deep way, but I had no idea how to run a business. I had no clue. <laughs> and one of the weaknesses of most grad programs is there's not really a class on how do you run the business of what you're studying right now? Whether you're in, in law or a doctor or whatever you do, there's really not that class out there uh, so often. And so I really struggled for a while and finally figured out and got some mentoring and training and eventually got certified as a business coach and executive coach. But it was a, an interesting journey where, you know, this, this show is really about transformation and it's, and transformation is not always glamorous. And sometimes our knees get skinned and scarred as we make our way through. And yet that's our deepest learning a lot of times. So without further ado, I want to introduce to you uh, Dr. John Demartini, who uh, I've been to a couple of uh, Dr. Demartini's workshops, and they've been incredible, uh, literally breakthrough experiences. And one of his most famous courses is actually called that. And I've rarely met, I don't think I've ever met or rarely met a, such a learned man who has studied, I think, over 30,000 books I was just reading. Is that right? around 30,000 books of many different fields from literally microbiology to the cosmos and everything in between. That's what really impressed me is how he's able to see universal patterns and universal laws from the range and depth of what he has studied. And so I'm so excited to introduce you today, John, to our audience around leadership mindset 
And how do you actually transform your greatest challenges, which so many people listening to the show right now are going through in a post-pandemic world, a lot of times having to deal with things they've never thought about dealing with before. And so without further ado, Dr. Demartini, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. So let's start with, um, you know, this story is really about transformation, as we said. Let's start with a story of your own. Um, I would love to hear, obviously, you help everyone uh, from executives to celebrities to politicians uh, who you've worked with in the past around their mindsets and their performance and, and fulfillment. What's a story of your own where you've had to overcome one of your own challenges with mindset and how you had to shift something to get a, a different outcome? <laughs> Um, probably what pops in my mind when you ask that is a really early experience when I was 18 years old. I was uh, told when I was in first grade that I would never be able to read, never be able to write, not be able to speak properly because I had a speech uh, problem when I was a child. From age one and a half to about four, I had to go to speech pathologist. I wasn't going to be able to communicate effectively probably wouldn't go very far in life, not, not much. I ended up dropping out of school. I was a street kid from age 13. Mm. I lived on the street. I um, did not finish high school. And I hitchhiked when I was 14 to California and surfed. Texas was not the surf capital. California was. But really, Hawaii was. So at 15, I, I made my way to Hawaii, panhandling money, and I flew to Hawaii. I lived under a, 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 a bridge first, then in a park bench, then in a bathroom, then an abandoned car, finally into it, uh, a other car, and then into a tent. And um, was social climbing. Mm. And I nearly died at age 17. I was riding big waves. Mm. I surfed 40 foot waves in those days. That was big wow. in those days. Today they go up to 100, but those days it was big. And um, I think I had somewhat of a death wish, I think, somehow, because I had to, he had to be crazy to, try to do these things. I nearly died at 17, right before my 18th birthday, about a month. Mm. And in the recovery of that, luckily, I was unconscious for three and a half days. And luckily, when I came out of that, I wanted to do more with my life. And some synchronous events occurred in my life where I was led to this little health food store, which led me to a little talk I never went to classes, but something told me to go to this talk of this gentleman who was speaking at the Sunset Recreation Hall. And I went there and one night, one man with one message in one hour spoke to me like nobody had ever spoken to me mm. and inspired within me a yearning to want to overcome my learning problems and learn how to read and learn how to speak properly. And that night I had a dream that I would travel the world teaching it was probably some dissociative identity disorder to, to compensate, but I had a dream to do that. And I, months later, I, I, I picked up my first book, Chico's Organic Gardening and, and Natural Living, because there's a hippie on the cover that looked like me, and I thought if that guy could write it, I could probably read it. <laughs> and um, I tried to read that book. It's the first book I ever tried to actually go through, but I couldn't read it. I just look at the pictures now. I went back and flew back to California, hitchhiked back to Texas at age, right at 18, and took a GED with a selection and, and assistance of my parents. They told me, take a GED, because in case you ever need a job, a high school degree will help you. And I miraculously passed it. 
guessing. Mm. Wow. I really believed that there was some sort of divine providence stepping in. And then I took a college entrance exam because they suggested that. My parents encouraged it. And somehow I passed it. And I really don't know. I just purely guessed. I just took a, closed my eyes. I said to myself the statement that a teacher told me that night in, in uh, Hawaii. I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. He told me to say that every single day to help me overcome my learning problems. So I was saying that and just closing my eyes and filling in a dark pencil and guessing and passing. And then I tried to go to college to take my first English and history class in a summer school class, which is six weeks. And two weeks into it, we had our first test. And I thought the same thing was going to happen. I really started thinking there was some sort of providence here. But when I got my test scores, I needed a 72 to pass. I got a 27. And I failed. And I was so embarrassed because it was so low compared to anybody else. I didn't want to be seen. I ran to my car. Mm. I got in the car. I sunk down because there were people in the parking lot. And finally, I drove out, drove home, kind of like a dog with his tail mm. underneath. And went into the living room at my parents' house when I got there and curled up in a fetal position under a Bible stand, which I have here with me in this room today. Mm. The original Bible stand. I don't know if you can see it, but it's, it's right there. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, because um, my, my mom died, that's the only thing I wanted from her, because that was a special moment. I curled up under the Bible stand, and I was having a really low moment, because I was thought that I was on momentum-building direction of overcoming learning problems and learning how to read and learning how to speak properly and teach. But when I failed that, all I could hear is my first grade teacher saying, I'm afraid your son will never be able to read, never be able to write, never be able to communicate, never amount to things, never go very far in life. He better off going into sports so he might be able to excel there. And because I was born with my arm and leg deformed, I, I, had, a, I had to wear braces until I was four. And so when I got out of those braces, all I wanted to do is run. And the lady saw that I would probably excel in running and go into sports, which is why I could pick up surfing. And uh, so I, I was there on that, curled up in that fetal position. My mom came back from shopping and found me there crying. And she said, son, what happened? What's wrong? Because she hadn't seen me crying since I was very young, 13. And uh, I said, mom, I blew the test. I guess I don't have what it takes. I guess I will never be able to read properly or be able to write properly or speak properly. And I was just crying. And she didn't know what to say. And finally, she put her hand on my shoulders. And she put her hand there and she said, son, whether you become a great teacher, healer, and philosopher, and travel the world like you dream." whether you return to Hawaii and ride giant waves like you've done, or whether you return to the streets and panhandle as a bum, which I also did from 13 to 18. I just want to let you know that your father and I are going to love you no matter what you do, boy. Hmm. And when she said that, hmm. I, I felt her love, her appreciation, her certainty, and her presence. And my hand went into a fist and I looked up and I saw a vision of me speaking in front of a million people in the background on a balcony for, for a million people with iconic buildings from around the world in the background representing the world. And I said to myself, when my hand went into a fist and I said to myself, I'm going to master this thing called reading. I'm going to master this thing called studying and learning. I'm going to master this thing called teaching and, 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 and presenting and, and philosophy. 
and I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to travel whatever distance. I'm going to pay whatever price to give my service of love across this planet. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of the earth, not even myself, interfere with this now. It was a, it was a moment where there was no turning back. There was a moment when there was a, there was absolutely human will and divine will were matched in a sense. And I got up and I hugged my mom. I went into my room and I got a Funk and Wagnalls dictionary out and I started to go to the beginning of it. I made a commitment. I was going to memorize that dictionary. And so I did 30 words a day and my mom tested me on 30 words a day on spelling, pronunciation, uh, putting into a sentence with meaning and doing that. And I had to memorize that. I could not go to bed until 30 new words were memorized. And I did that day after day after day after day after day consistently until my vocabulary was strong enough to be able to comprehend what was being said and be able to start to write it and put it together into words. I started reading dictionaries. I started reading encyclopedias every single day. And I'm now starting to pass and excel. I was more determined than anybody else. Most people were taking school for granted. I really wanted to learn. Mm. And then around... Right before my 19th birthday, my mom said, what do you want for your birthday? Son? Your birthday's coming up and Christmas is coming up. Born on Thanksgiving Day. Mm. I said, Mom, I want the greatest teachings on the face of the earth by the greatest minds who ever lived from around the world. And she said, are you sure you want a t-shirt? <laughs> I said, no, Mom, I just want the greatest writings on the, on the planet. Let me see what I can do. Well, she had a brother, what I called Uncle Ralph. He was a professor at MIT. He was a physicist and chemist. And as a gift, he sent two giant six by six by six foot wooden crates to my home on a flatbed truck. And they loaded it on the ground. I went out with a crowbar, opened up these crates, and filled, filled my room with books, thousands. And had a little yoga mat in the center where a sun salute could be done in the, in the morning in the window. And I started reading. And I started reading 18 to 20 hours a day and uh, applying what worked and what didn't work every day so I could expand my reading capacity so I could learn because I just wanted to learn the greatest ideas. So there were great philosophers like Leibniz, Godfrey Wilhelm Leibniz, uh, uh, Lewis in chemistry, a Nobel Prize winner. I mean, the, the, the people he sent were just gems. And I started devouring everything I could and every field I could to try to find the most common distilled essence and principles and methods that would maximize human awareness potential to help on the evolution of human consciousness and self-development, if you want to want to call it that. And how do I maximize human uh, potential on planet Earth? That's all I was interested in. And that's all I've been interested in for 47 years. And I started to attract in, in, in school, uh, people asking me questions all of a sudden, because I, I started excelling. Mm -hmm. And people started gathering around and asking questions. I started teaching. And um, in the library, anywhere I could go. And then when I went on to University of Houston, then my teaching started to expand. I had two, sometimes 100 to 150 people, up to 400 people a day under the trees with questions and answers. And then when I went on to professional school, I taught every single day, every night, every, no every night I taught whatever I read during that day. And I, by then I was reading four to seven books a day on average. And, uh, and I just kept going in it. And I opened up my practice. I started sharing in my practice, and I started having megaphone pre presentations into parking lots and stuff. And then it started going around the state and the nation. Now I've been blessed to speak in 154 countries, and we reach billions of people now.
So it's a matter if you if you if there's no turning back and there's no option but forward, and you give yourself permission to do what you're really inspired to do, you prioritize what you do and you delegate the rest. Um, there's nothing stopping us as mortals to doing something that we envision that's beyond our life. It's an immortal vision. Mm. You know, one of the key, this is such a powerful story and I so get why you're so on, on fire to do what you do. Your passions and your purpose is so clear to me. Um, and it sounds like if I get back to like the core shift, the core mindset shift, it sounded like, and let me know how it lives for you. Some, something along the line of there was the negative messaging from the first grade teacher. And I think we all struggle around mindset around those similar themes around old programming and negative programming from those early on around us. And then you were able to shift that uh, from your mother's love and her acceptance and love and appreciation of you that I love you no matter what. And then there was a way you made a commitment in that moment and you were able to love yourself and step into that in a new way. Is that accurate? Yeah, and, 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 uh... Many times we set up a bit of unrealistic expectations on ourselves and uh, we don't strategize and chunk that vision down into bite sizes. Mm. And I decided to start with just learning words mm. and learning syllables and learning how to pronounce them. Now people look at me now and they think, well, you can articulate now you're fluent and your vocabulary, but it didn't start out that way. In fact, if you go and listen to some of the earliest tapes I ever did 35, 40 years ago and earlier, uh, you will see that it's a definite progression there. But it's like a domino, the domino effect, you know, little, little dominoes can make bigger dominoes go over and et cetera. And it's incremental momentum. And it's the incremental momentum of, of doing something and pursuing something that is so inspiring to you that you don't let anything stop you on the planet. And that, that makes it, un, you, it's, you become unstoppable. And it's not because of any special power. It's not because I have anything unique. It's just because I put the hours in. You know, mm -hmm. As Michelangelo said, when they, when they asked him, how did he do such a great masterpiece? If you said, you wouldn't think it's so great if you saw the hours that were into it. <laughs> it's just, it's the consistent hours. I've, I've taught the Brazer experience, which is my signature program, 1,101 times. And uh, that's, an average of 26 hours per, per program. So that's 28,000 hours I put into that one program. Just that one program. Amazing. So, so if you stay with something and build it, you build momentum on it. I was, uh, I used to live in Trump Tower underneath the Donald actually. Crazy Donald. Donald. <laughs> and uh, so I've known Donald for 28, almost 29 years. I know his family, I knew his wives, everything. And uh, he told me one time, he says, you have to do something so consistently that people identify you by it and become masterful at it. And so many people start, stop, start, stop, instead of building momentum and building a brand around something that makes them magnificent of what they do. Mm. And that was helpful hearing that. And uh, I have done that. So I, I, I thank him for that. But, uh, and by the way, the one you see on TV is not the Donald I know. Uh, if, if you were to go on Larry King Live and see the interview that they did on him when he just after he got married to Melania, uh, you'll see a different Donald than what you see on TV today because mass media likes to distort things a lot. But, but anyway, I, I appreciate him saying that. But I, I can say that it's when you're living in alignment and congruently with what you truly, truly value that is most deeply meaningful and truly what is inspiring to you, uh, you don't get distracted. 
you, you are inspired by what you do. And if you then delegate and release all lower priority things that are the sources of the amygdalas, impulses, and instincts that distract and stay focused in the executive center on what's truly meaningful to you, the meaning is the midpoint. You automatically, like a, you might say, a magnifying glass focusing the sunlight, you come on fire. And what happens is people uh, are automatically yearning and called to want to be authentic. And if they see somebody who's exemplifying authenticity, they magnetize to that. And people, places, things, ideas, and events synchronously emerge that you can see opportunities through and you can take advantage of it and you can move forward on it. And, and you start creating a momentum building impact. And you might say a, a culture of people on, a, on the way, not in the way. And I'm a firm believer that we're not here to subordinate to a culture. We're here to build a culture. Mm. Mm. Fantastic. Dr. Uh, Dr. Martini. I, I have a question for you and maybe a, a point of discussion. The, th the personal story that you shared had some common threads that um, I'd like to pull on for a moment and drag it into a space that relates to young people. You know, the young generation, I'm not going to classify them, but the young generation and leadership. And this, this, this uh, question is um, coming from, the, from the, the, this, the part of me which um, is slightly anxious about the next generation of leaders and what you said earlier about practice. Um, in, I'm a musician and outside of the business world, and I, I, I know all about practice. Another word for practice in, in, in Hindi is riyaz, where you spend hours and hours and hours just doing one thing. And I play the, the percussion instrument, the tabla, the Indian drums. And I remember my guru telling me years ago, I was a little kid, I'm very, I used to be very frustrated with him because I thought, God, this guy's taking so long to do this stuff. But he used to tell me to play the same note again and again and again, and, and, just, and I was like, this is so boring. But of course, 40 years later, 45 years later, I realized why he told me to do that stuff because that's how you build that level of mastery. And sort of, I related to that. What worries me though, is that the younger generation that we've experienced were extremely bright, gifted. In fact, they have, they have, an, abundance, they have an abundance of skills and traits, knowledge, perspective, exposure to people like you and us and, and, and many others through the internet that we never had. You have to read books. You have to read books and consume 30,000 books and it took you time to do that. They can, they can do that in an instant these days. That brings me to this concept of instant gratification. And I've worked with so many young people who are brilliant, but of course they're super impatient. I'm not saying that I'm not, I'm, I'm impatient too. But this is a totally different level of impatience where you want results almost immediately without putting the graft in. And um, I'd like to just stay with that for a moment and get your opinion and view on it because uh, these young people today are looking for jobs on un un unemployment. The unemployment crisis is coming our way in the UK and other markets too. And we've been talking about skills and resetting yourself, uh, changing your mindset, being open to new developments and, and, and um, you know, opportunities that are out there. But what is your take on this now? So that we're in this reset mode, um, whether it's a game changer or it's an accelerator, who knows, you know, different people have different views here. But what should the young generation do now moving forward with the example you shared, which is graft, persistence, focus? Um, what, can you, what can you share with these young people in terms of patience and the journey of instant gratification? Because it's tough out there for them as well. They're super stressed. Okay. Um, 
can I develop that? Because that's uh, that's an important topic, I think. Please. Every human being, regardless of age, spectrum of gender, culture background, moment by moment lives by a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most important to least important in their life, a hierarchy of values. And that hierarchy of values is completely unique to them, like a fingerprint, a snowflake, etc. Whatever's highest on their value, whatever is most important to them, whatever is most intrinsically yearning to express itself within them, is an intrinsic value that they are spontaneously inspired to do without any need for outside motivation to get them to do. And I mm -hmm. use the analogy of a boy with his video games. Nobody has to motivate him to do his video games. But they may require extrinsic motivation to do the homework, the chores, and clean the room. Mm -hmm. Because the boy does not see how those three things are going to help him fulfill what is truly most important to him at that moment. Now, we surrounding that boy may not value video games, nor understand video games. So we'll think he's, you know, goofing off. We'll come up with all kind of labels on him. But he has found something in those video games that is deeply meaningful to him. And that's why he's doing it. Mm -hmm. Whatever this most intrinsic value is, if we give ourselves permission to pursue what is truly most inspiring, meaningful, and priority, because we spontaneously are inspired to do it, we need no motivation. Motivation is a symptom, never a solution for humanity. But intrinsic inspired action, where you're disciplined, reliable, and focused there, seems like discipline to somebody else, but feels like just play to the person who's in there. People look at me and go, well, you're so disciplined. No, I'm doing what I love doing. It just looks like discipline to you in your value system. Mm. Now, once you access that and become aware of what that is for you and plan a structure of a life to fulfill that so you can spend your time doing the highest priority actions that are most meaningful to you on a daily basis, you will build momentum. And if you can then delegate lower priority things, you will be automatically inspired to get out and to do what you love doing. But you have the responsibility to fulfill other people's values in the pursuit of that. Because there's no meaning and there's no fulfillment unless you're exchanging in a sustainable, fair exchange manner, transactions that serve other people's values, their highest value, at the same time you. That's the mastery of life. Doing something that is absolutely inspiring to you that you can't wait to get up in the morning and do. And do it in a way that actually fulfills high priority values to other people that they're willing to pay to get your presence, to get your service, to get your expertise. When you do that, you found your niche, you found your inspiration, you now get to tap dance to work. Nobody has to get you up to motivate you to get to work when you do that. I don't need motivation to do what I do. Mm -hmm. And when you can't wait to get up in the morning and be of service to people, people can't wait to get your service. And so if you've been laid off, if you've had a setback in the St. Corona era, that could be the greatest gift of your life because it may actually now give you permission to deeply reflect and introspect on what's truly valuable to you and to care enough about humanity to find out what humanity really needs, what really is looking for, looking with the Google searches, what are they really wanting right now? 
and finding the niche that inspires you, that fulfills them. So you get a demand on your supply. And so you automatically wake up your entrepreneurial spirit and get after it. So you're not working by deontological duty from other people, paying the most taxes, draining yourself every day, wanting to escape with a break and escape with a, a holiday and escape with a retirement, which is not the way, which is Monday morning blues, Wednesday hump days. Thank God it's Fridays a week friggin' ends. <laughs> but to actually get up and do something that's so inspiring to do, you don't want to take a break. You have no desire to take a break. Why would you want to take a break from something you love doing? Right. Why do you want to take a holiday to escape when you're doing something you love to do? Why do you want to retire when you're doing something you love to do? So that is the key. No matter what age you are, no matter what generation it is, that's still the wisdom of the ages that stops the aging process. Because most people are so used to subordinating to the world outside, conforming to mediocrity, trying to fit in, as, as Ernest Becker and his Pulitzer Prize winner in the Denial of Death says, and not giving themselves permission to actually make a difference with their unique set of values. You can't make a difference fitting in. You make a difference by standing out, being authentic to what's called to do, your gift, if you will, to the world, and do it in a way where you care about humanity. And what's interesting is, when you're actually doing something that's really inspiring to you, you become so great at it that just like a young boy who loves his video games, the second he conquers a video game, he wants to go to a more advanced game. He wants to fill his day with more inspiring challenges that test him. And so people who live by their highest values, they naturally wake up their emerging leader that's dormant, and they automatically fill their day with challenges that inspire them that serves humanity. And they innovate and create because innovation, creativity, genius, and original ideas emerge spontaneously when we're challenged by things we inspired by. Mm -hmm. And that is where our genius is born. And that's where we contribute the most. That's where we have the most deeply meaningful states. And that's where our space and time horizons keep expanding even beyond our life where we create the legacy and the immortal effect that we want to create on the planet that makes the difference beyond our life. And those individuals, they don't let distractions from the outer world corona interfere with them because when the why is big enough the house take care of themselves and when they're clear about what their mission is they ask questions that represent feedback not in a sense failure or frustration they ask how specifically is whatever's happening today how's it helping me fulfill my mission and that question is a gold mine if you can ask whatever's happening to me today how's it helping me fulfill my mission on planet earth whoa now you go, okay, so how do I use whatever I've experienced today? Somebody's challenged me? Great. How's it, how's it helped me fulfill my mission? If you got a corona thing, great. How's it helped me fulfill my mission? Is it making you go online? Is it making you more technologically advanced? Is it making you care about your customer more? Is it making you prioritize things? Is it making you screen out things that you thought were important that aren't important? How is it helping you fulfill your mission on planet Earth? That's the leader of the future. And that is available any day, any generation, any time. It's a universal principle that will stand the test of time. Mm. Gotcha. So in other words, thank you for that. In other words, the, the core principles that you're relating to, which, which talks to, um, you know, the boy, the example of the young boy playing his video game, um, which is, I can, I almost relate to that to a large extent when I was listening to you because I was the naughty boy. And I uh, ended up doing education because I had to do education. But of course, um, we are here today because I was that naughty boy and I managed to f find a sense of purpose that I can connect with. I think young people have, they do that too. They do it pretty well. 
to a large extent. And, and I think they're very good at that, maybe even better than us, the slightly older generation. But I do still think that um, uh, you talked a little bit about prioritization. I just want to uh, sort of unpack that for a little bit. Um, imagine, imagine I'm a leader of a large organization, be it a bank, because banking institutions have been through turmoil since the last crisis. And I'm dealing with this whole COVID thing now. I've got to move a lot of my employees to virtual environments. I've got to think about digital in a way I never thought about it before, and so on and so forth. And there's a myriad of things that I've got to think about. Um, prioritization is an interesting one, and it's been discussed for many, many years. What's your view on how, once you find the thing that inspires you, or a set of things that inspire you, and you say, I'm absolutely going to do that every single morning because, like you said, it'll make me tap dance to work, and it gives me a buzz or energizes me. I'm, I've found that. But I'm struggling to do the stuff that I don't really want to do. I need to delegate it out. What mechanisms, what, what frameworks, what sort of models do you think exist out there that can be deployed instantly where you say, actually, I've organized my work in the stuff that I like to do and the stuff that I don't like to do. I found great people to do it for me. What, what would you recommend and how do you do it? Okay. I was 27 years old. I graduated from professional school. And... Um, opened up my practice. I did everything initially. I hired me an assistant. She started doing something, some things for me, more of the administrative. Sure. But I was still doing way too many things that was below my, you might say, my, my skill and my training level. And um, I had all kind of internal blocks. I can do it. By the time I share it with somebody, I could have just done it. If I did do it, it's not going to be as good as when I do it. And all this, all these distortions that I was carrying around. Mm. I knew I needed help on that. And I went to Walden's Bookstore, which is a, a franchise at the time. And I bought a book called The Time Trap by Alec McKenzie. And I devoured that book inside and out and underlined it and extracted and summarized it. And I'll share what I summarized because it made a huge difference. I got a piece of paper out. In those days, you had a piece of paper. Mm. Uh, there wasn't even a dot matrix computer app until 82. <laughs> there was an IBM Selectric, which was the advanced technology with a ball on it. And I got a piece of paper, and I drew five lines on it, six columns. And in the first line, first column, I mean, I wrote down every single thing that I do in a day. Over a three-month period, any day over a three-month period, what I might do in a day. Mm -hmm. I wrote down everything. And I didn't write down broad, vague generalities like marketing. I wrote down the actual <clears throat> action steps I did in a day. <clears throat> down into incy-bincy in little bite-sized actions. I wrote down 139 different things I was doing in a day. And I divided them into professional and personal because some of that was at home. And I made that list in exhaustion so I could not think of anything else that I would do over a three-month period. Some things I do once a week, sometimes every day, sometimes multiple times a day, et cetera. Once I got that list, my mind had a number of discussions inside it. I realized now my mind was actually clear by getting it down on paper and actually looking at it. I realized that I was majoring in minors and minoring in majors right as I was writing it. And I was filling my day with a bunch of stuff. Mm. It was busy, but not productive. But I, I could see it as I wrote it. Then on the column two, um, I wrote down how much does every one of those 139 different items produce for me per hour? 
because production per hour meant that I'm serving other people's needs and they're willing to pay for it. Because money is basically means that you're meeting somebody's needs. Mm. So I looked at what was actually producing something that meant something to somebody, not just me, but to somebody else enough for them to pay. And I wrote down what it produced per hour. So I did exams, $125, 10 minutes. So I multiplied that times six to make an hour, six times 120 came out to be a certain amount. I did a narratives and I took two hours to do it. It was $400, so it's $200 an hour. I did every single thing that I did in my practice, my personal life, administration, everything I was doing, I wrote it down and what was the dollar it was producing. And there was a lot of stuff that wasn't producing any money directly. Mm. So I had to extrapolate it based on, out of all the things I do and what is it net to the company and what it probably is, and I did my best extrapolation. Mm. And there was a lot of stuff I was doing for free. And I was unconsciously avoiding that because I knew it was devaluing me and I needed to do those things, but I didn't want to do those things. And that was necessary for me to grow my business. So I was in my way. Hmm. So I had to really do an honest evaluation of that. And when I got through that list, I put all the dollar values to everything from zero up to $15,000 an hour, which happened to be a shocking thing that wasn't, I, I was not trained for I found out that my clinical application was going to make me $1,500 an hour. But if I actually went out and did presentations and engage people at conferences, I got to get more patients. I could actually produce 15,000 an hour with patient volume. Mm. And I went, Whoa, I'm, I'm actually in my way sitting in a cubicle. I'm actually better off going out and sharing the message. Those of the mission have a message, which was a bit shocking. I wasn't expecting that. Then the third column was, how much meaning on a one to 10 scale each of those actions represent to me? This is not what it produces for others meanings, but in now how much, is in, how much inspiration do I get out of it? Mm -hmm. And I put a one to 10 scale and I wrote all those inspirations down, down to things that were desperations. I hated doing versus the thing I really loved doing. Mm -hmm. And then I, did, I revamped, revamped that like the second column, according to priority, which produced the most to least, which is most meaningful to least. And I looked at where the most meaningful and the most productive work, because then that's, I can't wait to do it. And then they can't wait to get it. Mm. And I prioritized that list. And that was eye-opening. And luckily, a great number of them that were meaningful were also productive. The third, the fourth column I did was how much would it cost me to delegate that? And that is hiring the highest quality person, A people, paying them, training them, space, utilization, salaries, parking, insurance, everything that was at cost, paper clips, pens, tests, computers, everything. And did a very thorough analysis of what it would cost me for every one of those action steps per hour, per day, mm. per month. And I did that to the best of my ability. And then I reprioritized it according to spread. What could produce the most per hour versus what cost the least per hour, where I was looking at spreads where I could get extract out the most by delegating versus least for delegating. And that was an eye-opener because I realized now exactly what I'm going to delegate and in the priority and sequence, I'm going to delegate it. Then the next column was how much time I actually spent on it truly. So I know how much time I'm going to need somebody, whether I need to hire them part-time, full-time, etc. Mm. And the last column was the final prioritization based on spread, meaning, and productivity. And I summarized that prioritization the best I could. And then I divided up into 10 layers and I took the lowest layer and I hired somebody with a job description that matched that. 
I had to go through three people to get that person, but I finally got the person where I no longer had to think about it. It was gone and they took care of it. And that extracted surplus labor value and allowed me to go and serve more people and go and do what I love doing, which produced the most income, which easily paid for it. It never costs to truly prioritize and delegate properly. It only costs when you hire somebody that's not inspired, you're not really doing the thing that produces the most on top of it, and you keep micromanaging and distract yourself and don't get anything done. Mm. So what I did is I did that layer, and when I got that, I got the next layer, and I got two people to finally do it, because I had to learn how to hire people and make sure that the person I was hiring, their highest value was to do what I want to delegate. Because yeah. if they're not engaged and inspired to do it, I'm going to end up micromanaging and have to motivate them, and then I'm going to be distracted. So I layered that up, the third person, the fourth person, and in 18 months from that initial assessment, I had tenfolded my business in income, had 5,000 square place instead of a, under 1,000. I had five doctors and 12 staff members all in 18 months, my business grew that much. And I was free to get out and start doing television shows. I had my own television show on health, uh, mm. to do presentations and engage people into patients. I had these megaphone systems and into the parking lot where people could come in and when they would park going to these other stores, they would hear me speaking and they come in and we'd generate patients. I had a system in place that I was basically generating a large sum of money in a very short period of time based on the highest priority actions that I loved doing that was most meaningful and most productive that allowed me to get the most productivity per, per minute of my time. And then I was free. I didn't have to do any of those other things anymore. It was free. And I hired people that loved doing that. And that was a 18 month journey. But I, I, you don't forget that. And now I only research, write, travel, teach. I don't do anything else. I haven't driven in 32 years. I have cooked since I was 24. <clears throat> I don't do anything that is devaluing my time. Because anything at time you do things that are lower on your values, you devalue you. And when you devalue, so does the world. And when you do lower priority things, you go into the amygdala. When you go in the amygdala, you get distracted with impulses and instincts. And you then stay away from your mission in life. You mm. go off on your immediate gratifying passions and your space and time horizons shrink mm. instead of expand. And they mm. only expand in your highest values. They shrink in your lowest values. That's why Freud called it the expand the ego versus the shrunken ego, the idiot, the, the id. So the key is to make sure that you prioritize and delegate and when you do prioritize and let it go, you get on with the things that are most meaningful, the most productive, the most inspiring, the most um, uh, helpful to the society and go solve people's problems and mm -hmm. go, get off on solving people's problems. Mm -hmm. Don't try to avoid problems. Go after problems that you can solve. Bill Gates asks himself an amazing question on a daily basis. What is it I can do that serves the ever greater number of people in the most effective and efficient way that I'm inspired to get up and do every day with the resources that I have? Mm -hmm. That's a wise question every day. Mm -hmm. How can I serve at ever greater numbers of people with the resources I have today? Right. And mine has been blessed to do that. And every year, the numbers that we get to serve are expanding. Every year, they expand. And the That's more expanding, more service we do, the more rewards we get in life. Yeah. You know, Dr. Demartini, it's such a great example of when you're attracted to your highest value activities and you're clear about that, you're going to attract other people who can serve their highest value activities um, that, that complement what you're doing, whether they love to cook, they love to uh, do the books, whatever their passions are. And I just see how that synergy forms when you're in your alignment with your deepest purpose in that way. I, I, um, I was in Tokyo filming for a movie 
and doing some presentations there. And uh, the last program I did that was a live program was that. Hmm. And then I had flew to Los Angeles and I was about to do a series of programs there. And the city got shut down, right? Everything got shut down. Hmm. I was blessed to be able to fly from there to Houston where my kids are. I thought, well, maybe so if I'm going to be in one place, I might as well be close to the kiddos. My kids are 35 going on 36, 32 going on 33, and 30 almost. But I, um, I got here, and when I did, they shut down the hotels here. <laughs> and so we found one hotel that was open for me. So this is <laughs> irony. This is the funny part. So I'm in a, a magnificent hotel, and uh, there was only 10 people working in the hotel for two months for me. So I had my own private hotel villa. And uh, the cook cooks for me. The, everything's done. And, I, and that's a classical example. Mm -hmm. When you live by priority and you delegate things, the universe provides you a mm. continuum of that in your existence. Mm. Mm. The hotel's not even open. That's amazing. It wasn't even open. I have one burning question I want to ask you, but I also want to remind the audience, anyone listening to this right now, if you have a burning question for yourself, we want to get your questions answered by Dr. Demartini, especially if you're struggling around a mindset issue right now around COVID, around work, around economy, whatever it is for you, relationship, whatever it is for you right now, if there's a struggle you're going through, now is a great time to get your questions answered. So I just want to plug that in. And then my question for you, Dr. Demartini, a lot of times when people talk about a growth mindset, they often associate that with positive thinking and positive mindset. And I know you're pretty bullish on this one, that if you're just doing positive thinking all the time, that's bullshit, that there's this universal law of complementary opposites. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know that I feel uncomfortable sometimes when everyone's just doing mantras and trying to keep it positive, but they're not, you can feel they're not in reality in a certain way. Can you mm. speak a bit to that piece? Oh, I can. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> um, okay, so here's my... My background, I used to teach neurology back when I was in my 20s, actually, in professional school. And I, um, so I, I love the neurology bit. We have a, a hierarchical brain. Hmm. And we have a forebrain where foresight lives. And we have a hindbrain where hindsight lives. One's teleological and purposeful oriented. And one is telenomic and is a heuristic of trial and error oriented. The one is objective seeking, and objectivity means even-minded, balanced-minded. Objectivity means non-partial, non-biased, even neutral-minded. But the amygdala and the hindbrain areas below um, are avoiding pain, seeking pleasure, avoiding predator, seeking prey, avoiding challenge, seeking support, avoiding difficulty, seeking ease. Mm -hmm. And so when we are not living by our highest values, our blood glucose and oxygen goes from the executive center down into subcortical areas and awaken and actually demyelinate the advanced part of the brain because it doesn't want to waste energy on things and fuel on that. It demyelinates that and goes down the amygdala and activates the impulse towards pleasure and the instinct away from pain. And we tend to be polarized in our view and want to seek a pleasure over a pain and ease over difficulty. And therefore, we tend to seek a fantasy and try to avoid a nightmare. <laughs> but the Buddha said very nicely, the desire for that which is unobtainable, one side of a magnet, and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable, the other side of the magnet, is a source of human suffering. Because <laughs> nature has both sides. Now, here's the fun part. Whenever we're living by our highest values and waking up the executive center and we're going after objectivity, we're neutral. 
We don't fear the loss of that which we fantasize about. We don't fear the gain of that which we are trying to avoid. We're neutral. So we're a lot more resilient, a lot more adaptable, a lot more creative, and we're in our executive function where we can look for innovative ideas to find and solve problems or perceive problems. But when we're down in our amygdala, we lose our vision, we lose our strategy, we lose our execution, we are lose our governance over our impulse and instincts with GABA and glutamate, which the executive center functions as. We go down in our amygdala, and now we become blinded by bias. And we become blinded by distortions as a survival mechanism because we're now in the animal brain trying to survive. And the blood glucose and oxygen goes there. And what happens is we, we start having this yearning for immediate gratification. We look for pleasure over pain. We don't want to look at the other side. We blind ourselves from that. And then when that other side comes, we call it distress. When we're embracing it and we're preparing for it and we're mitigating the risks of it, we call it eustress, which is wellness promoting. But when we're down the middle and we're trying to avoid a pain and seek a pleasure, we want the fantasy, we want the positive thinking, we don't want to think negative, but the negatives actually are in our consciousness as anxiety, doubt, insecurity, self-depreciation to counterbalance the fantasies we're pursuing because we know we don't have certainty. We only have certainty when we have objectivity. So that distressful response that's there is there as a friend, not an enemy. And we're not here to get rid of it. We're here to listen to it because that means we didn't plan strategically to mitigate those. And if we do, we don't have that stress and we don't have the fantasy because we dissolve the fantasy by the planning. The purpose of the executive center is to transform fantasies into true objectives. And many people confuse goals with their fantasies, not their true objectives. And that's important to make that distinction. And the brain is automatically designed to do that. That's why it's getting you symptoms. It's creating anxieties because the, the two primary fears, there's only two primary fears that run people's life. The fear of loss of the fantasy you're seeking and the fear of gain of the resentment and the, the nightmare you're trying to avoid. And those phobias, because of those philias, are the sources of the distractions that keep you from being present with what you really are inspired to do in your life. So I'm not a positive thinker. I'm a balanced thinker. If you're infatuated with somebody, you're conscious of the upsides and unconscious of the downsides, you need to look for the downsides or you're gonna be caught in an infatuation. And whenever mm. you infatuate with somebody, you're gonna minimize yourself to them, try to sacrifice you for them, try to live in their values, which is futile, and self-depreciate. And if you're resentful to somebody, you're gonna narcissistically project your values onto them, trying to get them to live in your values. Neither one of those is where the power is. It's when you do what you're here to do, and you do it in a way that serves other people's values and you're both getting your values met, that's how you get in the flow. So I'm not into just positive thinking, I'm into a balanced thinking and to ask quality intuitive questions because your intuition is constantly trying to bring you back into homeostasis, not polarize you with impulse and instinct into a duality which is automatically self-defeating. So I'm a firm believer in balancing out your, your, your emotions. As, as Warren Buffett says, until you can manage your emotions, don't expect to manage money. As, as uh, Green said, Robert Green says, until you can manage emotions, don't expect to be a leader. Because leaders have to handle paradoxes, not avoid one side of the paradox. Mm. You know, and by the way, you don't have to get rid of half of yourself to love yourself. You can love <laughs> yourself on both sides. I'm a hero and a villain. I'm a saint and a sinner. I'm a virtue mm -hmm. and a vice. I'm not one-sided. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't consider myself nice without mean or kind without cruel or positive without negative or peaceful without raffle. I have every trait. I need every trait. I use every trait. Mm -hmm. I love every trait. I have nothing to fix, nothing to get rid of. And if I come from that perspective on myself and other people, I can love them for who they are. Mm -hmm. And every human being is yearning to want to be loved 
for that wholeness, not the fantasy moral hypocrisy that we imposed on ourselves and others all day. Yeah. What you just said right there, I think, has been my biggest growth spurt in less than the last decade or whatever it's been, specifically around how much can I embrace my own shadow elements, as they're quote called in air quotes, but the parts of us we, I usually reject, we usually reject, and it's been getting in touch with those, getting to know those, getting in relationship, accepting that. Um, that's been my greatest source of healing and integration that continues, where before I used to be afraid of that, I used to run away, I used to push away and defend against. And that never served me. <laughs> and so that's been such a huge lesson is we all have shadow. We all have parts of ourselves that are unconscious too and old patterns and what have you. And how can we learn to get into relationship with those and be more integrated and whole versus split? Our very values come from those. Every time we're infatuated with somebody and we minimize ourselves and we're too humble to admit what we see in them is inside us. There's a void in us, an emptiness, a deflected, disowned, um, diffracted part of ourselves. And anytime we're resentful to somebody and too proud to admit what we see in them is inside us, again, we have disowned parts. Mm. All of our disowned parts are emptinesses that are now wanting to be filled to eventually own what we see in other people. Schopenhauer says we become our true self to the degree that we make everyone else ourselves. Plato said all learning is recollecting those parts, like Humpty Dumpty putting them back, back together. Mm. At the level of the essence of the soul in the theological language, nothing's missing in it. It's a pleuromic fulfillment. But the level of the existence of the senses, things appear to be missing. And so most people are living in an emptiness, economic state, instead of a pleuromic state where they're actually having gratefulness and fulfillment on a daily basis, allowing themselves to love themselves and other people the way they are, and knowing that people are going to do and live according to their values, and you're going to live according to your own. Not You're not going to live in theirs, and they're not going to live in yours all the time. But learning how to communicate what you value in terms of what they value is the mastery. Love it. Got it. Should we have some more time? Um, yeah, Af, you want to uh, fire in a question? Yeah, I, I just want to pick your brains on another very important topic. Um, just before coming on this call, we, I had an opportunity to talk to a bunch of C-level um, people in, in a bunch of different companies. And what seems to be really hot right now, which I think is an upside of the, the, the reset or the aftermath of, of this pandemic, is that um, the prioritization of of what to do next at a business level is starting to be uh, discussed and reconsidered quite seriously. One very positive note is this, this focus on the planet, uh, which has been, we've been talking about it for a long time, of course, it's been ignored. But the focus on the planet, the focus on the climate, the focus on environment, the focus on uh, society, the focus on good governance in, at an enterprise level, the focus on paying taxes and trying not to avoid paying all of those taxes and, and so on and so forth. And um, the, where I wanted to pick your brain, really, um, Dr. Martini, was around this concept of ESG, uh, which is hot, uh, super hot. Everyone's discussing it. I was listening to the, the various CEOs of the top banks in the, in, in the U.S. talk about this. Funds have been created, reports have been produced, metrics have been discussed, and so on and so forth. Um, there are two parts to this. One is ESG, so environment, um, social and corporate governance, as it's called, ESG is all about good things um, for, the, for, the, for society and the environment that a corporate should do. The other is what I'm referring to as ESC, which is the CEOs focus on their employees, um, their shareholders, and of course, their customers. Now, what is your view on, let's, let's, be, let's fantasize for a moment, and let's imagine that we're in a better world, and it's a fairer, more just world, 
where we're considered we're considering all of these things in, in equal proportion what do you think what is your message in the last few minutes to the ceos of large organizations today um and what do you think they should be doing with esg and esc what, what you you're you're the ceo of a bank today let's imagine you're walking the shoes you may not want to be but you are now what are you going to do differently uh, it'd be great to get your opinion in the last few minutes i'd, I'd first get out of the narrow thinking because that's still narrow thinking okay I spoke at, at a conference, a peace conference for the United Nations in Canada, Vancouver, many years ago. And they were talking about the triple bottom line at the time. Yeah. And I said, that's still narrow, still thinking small. Uh, at Harvard University, there was a book called The Balance of Powers, and it talked about the seven areas that society faces. We have educational systems. And in order to compete with global markets, we have to have quality educational systems. So our mind area has to be developed. We have vocational, we have to do productivity per capita to compete globally. So we have to have productivity per capita, which is efficiency in business to the customer, all those things you just mentioned, that's a small little subset. Right. Then you have um, your economics, you have to have uh, income per capita, it's stabilize and grow. Your goal is to make sure that, that that's shareholders, stakeholders, anybody that's involved that's gonna need economics from it. Then you have family. You have to have family, the fertility and mortality rates and the communication and family because you can undermine business because of relationships and divorce and things. Then you also have social impact on social initiatives and the social, anything that society is currently affected by or focusing on, they have to be factored. Mm. Then you have physical health. So if you're not figuring, factoring physical health, um, you know, you could be, uh, be a pharmaceutical company or a, a chemical company and be destroying the water and people could be dying left and right because of toxic materials. There's a physical health component. And then there's an inspirational component. Regardless of what people have, there's still beliefs in 97% of the population of some spiritual, existential, or essential part of them nature that they need to fill. And so instead of the triple bottom line or the quadruple bottom line, which is business and finance and maybe a little bit of social and ecological, which is just a small piece of the puzzle, those all have to be factored and all seven of those areas need to be factored if you really care about humanity. So to me, the bigger the vision you have, the more you're going to have a long-term impact, the wiser you are as a leader. So it's not just you know the profit of this and that, and that. it's still narrow thinking because you're not factoring in all the mothers in home and, and their kids and the next generation and you're not focusing on, on the social implications and the ecological. All of them have to be accounted for. And so to me, expanding your awareness one of the reasons i teach the course uh, my my seven day course on leadership and mastery is to expose them to all of those so they start thinking on a broader scale because if they do the bigger your vision and the more you solve problems in the world the more rewards you get out of the world right. so it's not just an immediate gratification of a profit margin to the company that's still narrow thinking in my opinion or just to the customer that's also important but it's still not but a small piece of the bigger picture so I'm a, I say, if you're really gonna be a leader, you need to factor them all in, and your vision has to be bigger. If you wanna make a difference in yourself, you need a vision as big as your family. You wanna make a difference and be a leader in your family, you need a vision as big as your community. You wanna make a difference in your community, be a leader in your community, you need a vision as big as your city. You wanna be number one in the city and be a leader in the city, you need a statewide vision. You wanna be number one in the state, you need a national vision. You wanna be number one in the nation, you need a global vision. You want to be a global leader? You need an astronomical vision that encompasses all those, all seven areas of life. That's why I'm a teacher of all those seven areas, because to me, mastery of life is encompassing all of it, not just three or four little areas. 
Perfect. The bigger the the bigger the vision, the wiser you are. Uh, I took that away from that that narrative for sure. Um, fantastic. And we've we've unfortunately run out of time, but I'm going to hand over the uh, the mic back to to Rick to close off. Um, what what a superb one hour and a lot for us to to think about and pensive at this point. <laughs> yeah, I want to thank you so much, Dr. Demartini, for your time, energy, passions, so so feelable and palpable. And to remind all of our audience members for listening to this on replay, um, you can catch us on the usual channels that you'll see on our website, straighttalk.live, on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and we're now podcasting. You'll, see the, you'll hear the replays on um, Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. So that's new as of this week. And Dr. Demartini, where can people find you if they want to learn more about you and your programs as well? Well, probably the easiest thing to do is just go to drdemartini.com. Um, or then go on YouTube's or video. If you type in my name, it shows up a lot. And if you go to drdemartini.com, my website is an educational experience. You could spend the rest of your life on that. There's thousands of interviews, radio, television, newspaper, magazine, podcast. There's thousands of them. You can go on there and just educate yourself. There's online programs. There's videos. There's all kinds of things. There's live seminars that I do. And there's also a complimentary value determination process to help you identify what you really value. It's free. It's private. You can do it. It takes you 30 minutes. Do it with integrity and watch what happens. It will help you prioritize your life, help you wake up your leader. It'll help you empower your life. Take the time to do that. It's worth doing. It's free. It's uh, be eye-opening, I promise. And I've personally taken a couple of Dr. Martini's courses myself in London, in fact. I've been there more with you than in the U.S., and I can personally attest to you're going to have dots that connect that you didn't even know connect about your life, about the different ways that you show up in the world, uh, what's, what you're most passionate about with your own values and purpose. It's highly recommend uh, looking more deeply into his works if this calls to you, for sure. And just really quick, next uh, on Thursday, we usually don't do two shows in a week, but on Thursday we are. And we have the pleasure of inviting Martin Ectors, CIO of Legal in General, He's one of the most brilliant, innovative thinkers I've ever seen, especially in the digital space, around how to think and act like an innovator. Attend at your own risk. Warning signs. Okay. So once again, thank you so much, Dr. Demartini. Always a pleasure. We, I already know we'd love to have you back. <laughs> and um, all the best in, in this, in your wonderful hotel with your whole attendance over there. <laughs> and, and, and getting to go um, hopefully soon explore the globe like I know you're passionate about. Yes, I intend to do that. Thank you so much for the interviews. Lovely questions. Lovely, great job and job. And I look forward to seeing you live uh, yes. or online again, whatever we do. Excellent. Thank uh, you so much, everyone. Thank okay. you. All the best. Have a great All day. All the best, everyone. Bye -bye.